Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stennett, and I'm here live and in person with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up? What's up, man? We are in the same room for the first time. Yeah, we've done about 20 of these episodes, and we've always been in different places. Um, And people have asked me, actually, they're like, Oh, are you in the same place? They're like, where does Andrew live? And I'm just like, well, Andrew lives in L.A. I live in Austin, but now we're here, like, face-to-face. We've had many of these conversations face-to-face, which is how this whole podcast started. Right. But we've never actually recorded in the same place until today. It's pretty exciting. I'm excited to, like, look you in the eye and talk about movies versus looking at you through the laptop screen. (laughs) And, you know, we've circled. We're like, okay, we want to do a podcast in person. And in our Facebook group and even friends, there's been a bunch of movies requested like, oh, talk about this. We have a whole long list. Like, we're going to be doing this for 10 years because people, there's a lot of movies to talk about. (laughs) But for some reason, one of the most requested movies is Jojo Rabbit. Uh, Why do you think Jojo Rabbit gets requested so much? I think it's because it's such a wild premise. I think a lot of people have really liked this movie a lot. And I think it surprises people that they did like it. Um, When you hear the pitch for this movie, which is a young Nazi child whose imaginary best friend is Hitler and the journey he goes through, that doesn't sound like a movie that one should ever have been made and two, one that you might want to watch. And the heart behind this movie is, I think, so, so deep and so like it's such a lovely movie. It's really quite beautiful, packed within what seems like an absolutely ludicrous and problematic premise. And this is actually a really, for the most part, like, loved movie. There's some criticism and there's some pushback. Yeah. Against it, pretty strong, actually, and we're going to talk about that and get into this in this episode. But, you know, you look at the IMDb score, you look at the Metacritic, you know, like, people, kind of the fans, love this movie for the most part. There's yeah. a lot of, like, uh, admiration for it. And even the critical reception, despite there being legitimate pushback on the movie, was really pretty good. I mean, this, this even won the best... Uh, original screenplay oscar the year that it came out oh did it really it i didn't did. even, yeah i even looked that up in my notes uh, one quick sidebar is 2019 is one of the best years in movie history in my lifetime i think like i have a what all came out that year so that year is uh parasite wins best picture mm-hmm. which is you know incredible it's jojo rabbit it's Marriage Story, Scar jo, you know, is starring in Marriage Story and <laughs> Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. It is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, I think one of Quentin Tarantino's best films comes out that year. There's stuff like Joker. There's uh, Us. There's just this kind of, like, deep list of, like, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm doing People this. People have a top. lot of social things on their mind that year. Yes, exactly. Yeah. People really had a lot to, to like, say. Yes. <laughs> Marriage Story, Joker, Jojo Rabbit. Like, those are... And those are things that all could have some legitimate pushback to them as as well. The people with a point of view were well, writing movies that year. But then you also have movies like Ford versus Ferrari. You have Avengers Endgame comes out that year. Right. And so it's just this great kind of confluence of like really heavy, deep, weighty films and then fun popcorn films. And it was just like this the year before the pandemic. But I remember like texting my buddy Patton and I was like I'm telling you 2019 is one of the better years that we've had in a long time I think it's for sure the best film year in the 2010s for me I think 2016 was pretty good as well and then you go back like 2007 I think maybe the best film year 
of my lifetime. Zodiac was made that year. There will be blood. No country for old men. And then you go back even further. The 90s has 1999. 1994, 1993, those are all like great film years. Go back a little further, there's 1984 with Ghostbusters, and you know, and then you go to 1982, has this incredible summer. I'm doing this all off the top of my head. I right know, now. like you were going off the rails yeah. on, on what the best movie years are. You did a whole series for your 40th birthday where you listed all the best films for every year of your lifetime. So you really thought through this. So anyway, Jojo Rabbit comes out in the midst of all that sort of thing. And yeah. so, um, and it's it's from this director Taika Waititi who's like uh, an incredible comedian, right? So he's right. doing um these movies like I mean his movies before are Hunt for the Wilder People, which people if you have not seen that movie, go see it. It's this it's got uh our boy Sam Neill, Sam Neill from Jurassic Park and I don't remember the kid's name, but he's hilarious. He's in Deadpool 2. He's in Deadpool 2. He's in just he's I in think- He's Christmas a, Chronicles too. Like if you have kids and you've watched the Kurt Russell Christmas Chronicles movies, yeah. Christmas Chronicles two is not very good. The original <laughs> Christmas Chronicles is awesome. Um, Agree. But anyway, so Taika Waititi, and then of course most famously he does Thor Ragnarok. Which how do you feel about Thor Ragnarok? I think Thor Ragnarok is. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I think it's a really good movie. I have really strong feelings about the character of Thor and in trying to make him interesting and get him right, what they've done to his character arc. And I think that's really muddy and it's a whole different podcast. Um, But uh, I think Thor Ragnarok starts the trend of making his character less meaningful while it in itself being a really good movie. I feel personally like it's in the top five Marvel for me. Like it's just such a fun, crazy movie. And maybe it is where it starts to go off the rails because it goes whatever. But he, like, for me in that movie, sticks the landing of this, like... Absolutely. Ama- again, Jeff Goldblum, like, amazing performance from him, you know. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, so fun. It's probably the funniest Marvel movie, which yeah. is saying a lot because they're really funny. But it's also just, like, fun. You know, it's right. like, oh, this is what I want a superhero movie to be. And so Taika, one thing that I really respect about him is he takes all that Marvel money and he's like, okay... I'm going to, like, one of our other favorite podcasts is Blank Check. Yes. And this is a Blank Check movie. Right. This is a movie that you only get made when you're like, okay, I've done this amazing Marvel movie and I have this run. <laughs> and it's like, all right, Taika, the world is you. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? He's like, I want to make a comedy where Hitler stars as a wacky sidekick. And that's what this movie is going to be. And this movie never gets greenlit. I think of Taika as not Taika. Oh, abs- absolutely. If Ragnarok doesn't happen, there's there's no way that Jojo Rabbit uh, happens. Um, when he pitched it to the studio, um, one of their demands uh, for him to make the movie after they read the script is they were like, we want you to do this. This is good, but you have to play Hitler. My interpretation is, if you're going to do this movie and take this risk, we trust you that you can do it, but sort of you have to be the face of it. Like you have to be all in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit more about, like, how this is specifically a Taika movie. But before that, we haven't... I used to, when we started the podcast, Andrew, we had this kind (laughs) of, like, opening questions. I'd ask, like, is Titanic more of a Hallmark movie or more of a... I forget what I said. like A a serious movie about a historical disaster. (laughs) Which is really just, like... (laughs) <laughs> essentially throwing a grenade because then people are like, oh, why are romance movies bad or whatever else? But it's kind of a provocative question to start debate. And so I have another provocative question to start debate, which is this. 
Andrew Harmon, are there some subjects that you just can't make comedies about? I think the answer to that is probably yes, but I think that the answer changes based on who you are as the listener or what culture you're making the comedy from. Um, this is a really hard question to answer, and comedians across the spectrum answer this question wildly differently. The, uh, comedians have a really interesting sort of role in in culture, right? If you think about like the jester or the fool, right? You can say things that you could never say normally through comedy because it breaks down your defenses, and then you go, "Oh, why am I laughing at that? Why is you know what? Why did that strike me as as funny?" And so th that's kind of the perpetual question with comedians of what is across the line and what isn't um and i think it comes to the audience and one of the things i'm just kind of going off on this now one of the things that i've heard a lot of stand-ups talk about is when you're doing stand-up comedy you're in front of an audience and you can read the room right and you can tell like oh this kind of joke plays well here they understand the irony they understand um you know why this really taboo subject in the way that the joke is being delivered in the context of the show, in the context of, 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 of this narrative, this works. And some audience is like, no, that cuts too deep. Or well, they're even not where they're seeing doing the, the show, right? Like a show in Indiana right. is different than a show in LA. We've been talking about Indiana a lot this week. I don't know why. Like, yeah, it keeps coming up. We should do Hudsucker Proxy, a great... Uh, <laughs> do some Hoosiers. Movie. Yeah, Hoosiers, I don't know. But, but you know, a show in, you know... Alabama is different than a show in New York. You know, there is like this sort of context as well with comedy, as well as every audience is its own living organism. And so you can do that. But with a movie, with a movie, it's in a can. Yeah. Right. It's like, OK, I'm going to take this movie. I'm going to film it, put it on celluloid or digital celluloid or whatever we do. And it's going to go out to 3000 theaters. Uh, and that's who's going to watch it. And so for me, I'm like, are there some subjects you can't make a comedy about? Probably so, and I don't know where that line is. I yeah. think, like, I'm like, a 9-11 comedy feels impossible to me. It seems so callous. It seems so whatever else. But I'm like, the Holocaust itself is such a travesty in its own way. And this is not a Holocaust movie, but it's about Nazis. And so it's Holocaust adjacent. It's, it, it's definitely uh, Holocaust it, adjacent. One of, the, one of the main characters is a Jewish girl in hiding, trying to avoid the concentration camps. Like, it's... We we might not be in the concentration camp, but we're right next to the thread of it the entire movie. And there's this other movie, Life is Beautiful. Did you ever see this movie? Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. It's an Italian film about a father and son who've been taken to a concentration camp. And essentially, the father is trying to convince his son, like, hey, we're in a game. You know, we're like, right. this isn't real. And so it's like him trying to keep his son's innocence and hope and optimism for right. as long as he can, even though... He knows we're in the most horrific situation imaginable. Yeah. And so uh, Roberto Benigni wins also in 1998, I believe, okay. or 1999, the year of Saving Private Ryan. He actually wins Best Actor and stands up on the chairs. 20 years earlier. Yeah, 20 years early. And so um, anyway, so he, he won Best Director, Best Actor and Best Screenplay. I think he won three Oscars that year. He won maybe Best Screenplay. Best Director went to Spielberg, okay. I'm pretty sure. None of this is in our notes, people, so you can <laughs> fact check us on Facebook. We actually have very few notes this time. We, uh, you know, just speaking from the heart. Yeah, because we're in person and we're just hanging out. And so we're like, ah, research. You know, uh, anyway, are there some comedies, some subjects 
Like, I don't know, but I always applaud people who are like, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to do something brave. Right. And I think for, like, good reasons. And I think there's a good-hearted reason to make this movie. And I think, like, I remember seeing the trailer in the theater, and it was sort of, you know, there was a gasp of, like, can we even make this movie? Can we see this movie? Oh, right. Uh, and then, but I was like, okay, I have to see this. Right. And for me, I was like, I remember sitting in the, in the theater when I went to see the film, and I was like, he stuck the landing. Like, this right. film actually works. It's got, he walks this tightrope between comedy and drama, between, like, fairy tale and heartache. Mm-hmm. And for me, it worked. And I'm not saying it works for everyone. In fact, I know it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was like, okay, there's something here. Right. I remember when this trailer came out, when I, when I like, first heard about it in Variety or Deadline or whatever, it was, I was like, that can't be real. Like, the director of Thor Ragnarok is going to make and star in a movie about a young Nazi kid whose best friend is an imaginary Hitler. Like, it's just the, there isn't a crazier pitch in the world than that. Right? Um, But when I saw the trailer, I, like, I couldn't stop watching it. Right. It was also the same year that Cats came out. <laughs> oh, man. Right? Cats oh, no, came oh, out in oh, no. 2019? No, okay. Cats came out in 2018. Um, but around the same time that Cats came out, which is another trailer I couldn't stop watching. Sometimes... <laughs> no, it's 2019. Cats comes out in 2019. I just did the research. And so okay. I talked about how this is a great movie year. And then Cats has to come. And just like everything, Cats ruins everything. Right. So... I have often had the thought that you don't get your Jojo rabbits without also getting your cats. Sometimes, <laughs> which I think is absolutely, absolutely true. Like if you were to sit in a pitch meeting and say, we want to make the theatrical adaptation of one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's most famous, most profitable, most well-beloved stage musicals um, for Christmas about singing and dancing cats, or we want to make a movie about a young Nazi boy whose best friend is Hitler. Like, what movie do you greenlight? You obviously greenlight cats. I don't know if I'd greenlight cats, even <laughs> if I was given them. <laughs> That's just me. I'm a bad audience. Right. But, like, cats is a creative... It's a property. It's a huge fan base. But it's, it's got a train of wreck it. of a movie. It's taking the biggest, wildest swing it possibly can and absolutely falls on its face. It's the most frightening trailer I've ever seen. Like, I've never seen the movie. I'm like... I could not do it, but the trailer just like terrified me. I'm like, oh, this is what nightmares are made of. <laughs> that well, not to dive into cats, but I kept watching that that trailer because it seemed so crazy. I said, this movie has to be good in context because this trailer is so crazy. This is clearly a hundred million dollar film that has the absolute most absurd premise. How on earth is this a thing if it's not good? I feel like I had a similar feeling watching the Jojo Rabbit trailer. Of like, this looks really funny, and it's about Nazis, and that shouldn't be funny, and that's absolutely crazy. There has to be something in here. And while Cats, there is nothing there, and it's a dumpster fire of a movie, just on every single level. Um, Jojo Rabbit rises within this impossible situation to become something that is really, I think, magnificently beautiful. um, In a situation that you couldn't imagine finding that level of complexity in. Okay, so I'm going to tell you how I felt watching this film, um, both in the theater and then you and I watched it yesterday. Um, For me, I think what's so important with this movie, one is how it began, which I totally forgot, which this movie begins with a German cover of the Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh And over that song are clips 
of real archive clips of German children kind of screaming and cheering. And so it feels like a Beatles rock band opening. Like it feels like something from that thing you do, Mm -hmm. only it's like Nazi children screaming and cheering and burning books and doing all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I think that opening is so critical to the meaning of the movie because essentially it's asking, how does this, like, it's one thing for adults to make horrific decisions. And most films about the Nazis in Germany kind of ask that question of like, how did these adults, how did this evil happen in adults? And that's one question. But it's another thing of like, what's happening in the hearts and minds of children where they're kind of all about this. The whole question about this movie isn't really about like, the Holocaust and what happened there. It's really about like, okay, how does evil get into the hearts and minds of children? And then we kind of enter into a fairy tale. Even the Nazis in this movie are not really the Nazis of real life. They're more like the Nazis from Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're the Nazis from Inglorious Bastards. They're the Nazis from Hollywood, right? Like they're right. kind of like character Nazis, not real fairy tale Nazis is the way that I would say it. Yeah, they're all Americans. Or, I mean, Americans, New Zealanders, or British people doing somewhat clownish British accents. Right. Right? Like, even even the most serious characters in it, which I would put Scarlett Johansson's character of his, of his, his mom, like, her German accent is, like, sort of cute and whimsical. Um, it There is a, a level of being removed from reality, almost like a Wes Anderson film. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe how much Wes Anderson... I was like, oh, this, the art direction, the pace, the tone, some of the shots. I was like, this is definitely, you know, in Taika Waititi, like especially in Hump for the Wilder People has that vibe. But this very much was a nod and ode to, like Moonrise Kingdom was kind of on its mind. Uh, Even um, the Royal Tenenbaums was on its mind. Like all these Wes Anderson classics are in the backdrop of this film as well. Right. Again, the, the, the question of should you make a movie centered around Nazis that is whimsical. Like, that seems wrong, right? And and even talking about this now, it, it feels like we're, like, walking the knife's edge of, like, why isn't that wrong? And I think it's because this movie has... I don't think Nazis are at the soul of what this movie has on its mind. It has what you said is, how does evil get into the hearts of children? And what is sort of the solve to that? Yeah, and there's so many little great jokes. Uh, the little boy who... I'm trying to remember Yorkie? what his name is. Like, yeah, what's his name? I think it's Yorkie, right? Yeah, Yorkie, uh, who plays his like best friend. Like, their interaction. Like, there's this one moment in the movie where he's like, "Oh, you got a new uniform," and he's like, "Yeah, it's paper like," and he's kind of wearing this like, you know, and it's kind of a joke on like the Germans are getting like poorer and poorer. They're m- running out of money. They're running out of morale. Like, but this sort of thing of like Germany's always like, "Oh, we're in control. We got this thing on our corner," you know, and like the yeah. way that it's that kind of idea is put through the hearts and minds of children just makes it really funny. And this idea of like, like German children are like, okay, you're five, you're old enough to throw a grenade. Like, let's go. Here's how you do it. Throw a grenade. And like, that's so kind of funny, but it is also satirizing. And so I think that's what this, that's at stake in this movie is like the things we teach our children, the things we normalize with our children are what's going to create the morality of our societies. Right. And it's it's interesting, like so, m- most of the adults in this movie, even the ones that are clownish and silly, right? So like Rebel Wilson plays a uh, uh, one of the leaders of this like Nazi indoctrination camp, right? Like so, so many of the characters in this movie are 
funny. Stephen Mer- Merchant plays a uh, Gestapo police, and he's like silly as he as he does it. But even like the comical characters that are adults, almost none of them, I feel like you're supposed to empathize with. So I don't think this film is asking you to like empathize with Nazis. It's asking you to empathize with the children of this film and how it, how it feels to be a kid, which is one of the things that I felt in this movie was how much it nailed the idea of being a kid. And when you're so excited about something you don't understand, and then when you're confronted with it, you're terror of what it actually is. Okay, so with that in mind, let's get into the categories now. Sure. Who, who's your most meaningful character? So I think my most meaningful character is Scarlett Johansson's mother character, which I think she plays so beautifully in, in, in this film. Um, I've never seen a mom character played quite like this. Entering into heavy spoiler territory here, if you haven't seen the movie. This is a spoiler-filled podcast. I said that in the intro. And so people watch the movie (laughs) and then Um, go listen. Right. Um, So it ends up her, what she does um, and her resistance against the Nazis ends up up getting her her killed in in the end. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie. It's where the movie really turns. Um, but the way in which she is parenting Jojo is something that I haven't seen any movie try to undertake, which is the idea of appealing to his playfulness and his desires that she sees as fueling his fanaticism without with very rarely speaking directly against what he loves. It's it's this like tightrope journey of how to like relate and love on someone who you see doing something or going a direction that is terribly wrong without just like correcting them. And as like an adult to a parent relationship, that'd be the easiest thing to do is don't do this. Right. And so to, to watch her in so many of the scenes, try and love him sometimes sternly into a better life direction. And you see that take root over time as one of the two major things that starts to pick him up and like reshape his heart. She's careful to not say things and teach things to Jojo that are going to get him killed. And so she's in her own tension as well of like, right. okay, I have to teach him this morality or I hope he comes around to this morality, but I have to be careful because he's also my son and I don't want him to get killed. My most meaningful character mm-hmm. is Jojo himself. Sure. Uh, you know, so many interesting things. One, his name comes from this like literal save the cat moment in this movie that uh-huh. I thought where it's like, okay, <laughs> he's literally given a rabbit and they're like, hey, you need to kill the rabbit. Yeah. And he's like, can't kill the rabbit. Right. And I thought, this is the Save the Cat playbook where the Nazis give him a rabbit. And they're like, okay, just strangle him. And as they're saying that, you just see him petting the rabbit. And I think uh, Roman Griffin Davis, his performance is so good. I know I went after the kids in Jurassic Park. <laughs> I know that you've gone after Edward Furlong in Terminator. But I'm like, this is a great child he he is so good in this movie. This movie would not work without his performance. He he's the heart and the soul of it. And to me, the meaning of the movie is how do you influence a child? Well, there's a lot of these movies where it's like, okay, there's something bitter that happened. There's something angry. He saw horror, that sort of stuff. Yeah. One of the critiques of this movie that I saw is like, this is a film that teaches hurt people hurt people. Uh-huh. But I'm like, I don't think that's why he becomes a Nazi. No. He does not become a Nazi because he's hurt. No. He does not become a Nazi because his dad's not there. He becomes a Nazi because it's cool. Yes. He becomes a Nazi because it's like, oh, you get a knife and you get the cool uniform yeah. and you get to go to the camp where everyone's cheering and, oh, you want a grenade? We'll give you a grenade. 
Hitler's like the a superhero to him. You right. know, like I have kids. My daughter like loves superheroes, right. and so my daughter loves the cast of Stranger Things. And in the same way, like that's what Hitler is to Jojo. Right. And so that gives permission for this wacky kind of funny performance of Hitler because it's like it's so important that we're not watching Hitler on screen. In fact, Taika is not like doing a Hitler impersonation. He's Taika Waititi. You know, he's kind of goofy and funny there on screen. Yeah. But the reason he's like that is because he's Hitler through Jojo's eyes. Right. Right. He's 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 not actually Hitler. He's what Jojo imagines this great person who's leading his country would be. And so there's so many things that that Taika's fake imaginary Hitler says that like are nothing that would ever come out of Hitler's mouth. Right. You're you're viewing how a child is creating a fantasy that he's in in, in love with. It's actually based on really horrible like doctrine and ideals that he's not young enough to understand why those things are bad. Um, but we, we see his, his desire is not, and one of the best lines in the movie is the young, young Jewish girl. Um, what's her name? Elsa. 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 Um, Elsa says like, you're not a Nazi Jojo. You're just a boy who wants to wear a fun uniform and wants to be a part of a club. It's like one of the most touching lines in, in the whole movie. And I think that rabbit scene that you were talking about in the, in the beginning with him is such a beautiful example of what it feels like to be a a kid and to like love the fantasy of an idea he spent the whole time at this camp talking to his friend about how he's gonna like kill things and how he's gonna be like the best nazi soldier because they're in the middle of a war and the soldiers are their heroes right right, right. so the soldiers are, the, are, are are their superheroes and hitler is the ultimate right the ultimate savior of the country and to put this in actual historical context what this movie is not concerned with at all but like to some degree, the country was in a super duper depression, and by creating a war, the Nazi Party was able to bring Germany out of economic depression, which is never a reason to start a genocide, right? I'm not defending that in in the least, but th- th- there is a precedent for this man being a great man if you're willing to ignore all of the moralities. And so, if he's if this little kid is surrounded by people who are willing to ignore gigantic moral questions right that aren't questions um it's very easy to assume that there is a great man that you've never met leading i want to talk one thing about taika's hitler performance as well which is like he's really kind of funny and wacky and then there's these few occasional moments where you see like the nastiness bleed through him where he starts to get really angry it's almost like the real hitler is coming through and i think that's what this movie's about is about this child who again like he gets to have face-to-face interactions with this Jewish girl who's not only like human, but she's also attractive, you know, and so he's also attracted to her and there's yeah. that sort of complexity. And so he's coming to places of like all the things that I thought were true are maybe not as true. And so like his heroes are kind of crumbling right in front of his eyes. Right. But again, like I think that's what's interesting about this movie. And like if you have a problem with it, like I understand, but essentially its premise is not like the nastiness created this kid. It's rather like the wonder and in a sense of like, oh, you get to be cool and you get to be a superhero. Yeah. And the most powerful man on earth is actually your friend. Like that's what drives him into his Nazism. Totally. Absolutely. That that scene with the rabbit, it reminded me of like my myself when I was a kid. Like after watching like action movies or superhero movies, like I would have any number of fantasies in my head about like being a secret agent or like being a James Bond kind of guy that was like, 
gonna sneak in and take out all the guards and like save whoever like i remember the first time i ever like actually like hunted something and i was like oh taking a life is like dark like it's that's that's actually really hard um and it's you feel oh i'm not cool and you see the other kids who are like just do it just strangle it or if don't do the boot and then they're like and then all of a sudden it's like Oh, this isn't funny. Yeah, you this see it in his wrong. face. Yeah. Like, he takes the rabbit, like, of course, I can do it. Yeah. And then he's like, uh, like, when push comes, like, oh, this this doesn't feel like what I thought it would feel like. Yeah. This is new. This isn't the thing that's been in my head this whole time. Right? The fact that, like, wacky, fun, best friend Hitler is not real. Yeah. That's not what this is. And you see him discover that through this movie of my fanaticism is not the reality of the world. It's, it's it's fascinating, I think, to watch an innocent Nazi. Jojo is ostensibly innocent, this entire movie. Right. Right? And he's... Because he's never done anything, yeah. and he's kind of being forced into something, and so it's like... And I think where innocence and guilt starts, like, that's a big, fascinating ethical question. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about my most meaningful scene as well, which my most meaningful scene is when the Gestapo comes and drops by... Jojo Rabbit's house, yeah. and all of a sudden he's kind of in the living room, and then all the different guys are like, "Hail Hitler, Hail Hitler!" Like each one of the like Gestapo soldiers says, "Hail Hitler." And what's so funny about it is they're like, like it goes through, and there's like six of them, and they're like, "Hail Hitler!" at first, and like each one of them does, but by then they're like, "Hail Hitler!" Like it's like a little bit like, "See you later!" Like it's kind of fun and playful uh-huh. of them doing it. So each one of the guys says that to him. And so Jojo Rabbit says Hail Hitler to them. And then they've said Hail I've never said Hail Hitler in my life, by the way. This feels really weird to like right. speak these words out yeah. loud. And feels like I'm swearing the worst words. But that's what they're saying to each other, like in the scene. And so then all of a sudden they're looking for Elsa. Or they're looking around the house looking for something. And then Jojo doesn't have his knife. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, he feels for it and he's so worried. Like, oh no. Yeah. Kind of like the rabbit moment. He's like oh my gosh, they're going to find Elsa and they're going to kill her. And so Elsa comes in and then this same moment where she has to say hell Hitler to each one of the guys, you realize that this is a young Jewish girl which is saying the most vile sort of thing to these guys. And so this moment that was actually kind of funny and playful with Jojo is really heartbreaking with her. And I thought, only in this movie have I ever seen a scene like this where this like hell Hitler thing is like really funny in one moment and then it's like, so devastating and dark right. in the next moment. And it starts out when they're at the door and like they're Heil Hitlering him, right? Where you're kind of like, ugh, like the first time you hear it, it's kind of like, nah, right? Like even like you saying it or me saying it right now, like it, it's, but then they do it so many times. Not only did they do it to Jojo, Sam Rockwell's character right. comes in and they do a round of that and then he introduces them to his friend and they do another round of six to Correct. like his, 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 his friend. And by the end of that, it's this like joke of how many times they've all individually said hello to one another. By using the phrase, it's like a who's on first sort of like it's like a who's on first Heil Hitler, and then as soon as Elsa enters the room and you see it's gonna replay, it's like your mind, it's like you've been sucked into the gag, and then you go, it's not funny, like the and the film is like showing you like you can get sucked in almost right, like we can get sucked into this gag, and then but but this is heartbreaking, right, right, and to me that that's what makes this film work is it like is aware enough of like okay. There is comedy here, but then there's also such tragedy. And so, again, we're trying to make sense of, like, what this is. And the honesty of, like, what that experience is for Jojo versus what that experience is for Elsa Mm -hmm. is totally different. And it's frightening and it's heartbreaking. 
And we exper- and we watch Jojo experience so much through her eyes. And not only is his mother one character that turns him, but it's his relationship that he forms with Elsa. And his relationship with her is so innocent, I would say, the, the, whole, the whole movie. His turning point where he learns to start caring about her is when he insults her is she says that she's engaged to somebody and suddenly he feels jealous and so he writes a fake note from her fiance saying that that they've broken up because this little eight-year-old boy who has a crush on a girl that he can't admit he has a crush on like can't handle the fact that like there's some other guy out there so he writes a fake breakup letter to her and you watch her face totally fall and collapse and she's so hurt by it and you watch him realize like I've done this super silly thing. This has nothing to do with the conflict or the war or Nazism or anything. It's about like, I'm pretending your boyfriend broke up with you because I think you're cute. Right. It's a preteen prank. It's a preteen prank. It's something that would happen in a Disney show episode. Exactly. Except for he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Which which you don't know. Right. At that point in in the the movie. But you, you watch her be like legitimately hurt and offended. She doesn't say anything. She just like walks away and she's like hurt like anybody would when you've hurt their feelings. And he immediately goes and writes a second letter saying, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm not breaking up with you because he wants to like not hurt her feelings. He realizes that he's been mean, not that he's been a Nazi, not that he's been racist, but that he was he was rude. He was he was mean to someone who he actually like likes. And that's the moment where everything changes for him he he doesn't want to see her hurt even though he's insulting her constantly when she's hurt by it he 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 can feel it he doesn't he doesn't exactly it's the idea of killing the rabbit it's just like the rabbit right i can say all this stuff until i feel the hurt of it like oh this hurts this isn't good i don't like this so going from there did you have a least meaningful scene was there like a point in this you felt like detracted from what the movie was doing or just didn't really help it that much so because sam rockwell is like another nazi who actually like when push comes to shove he chooses like good instead of evil i think that's where this movie becomes problematic okay because it's not just the children who are like okay really goodness can bubble up out of the children but now it's a nazi adult and the reality is mathematically like that's not the case everything we know about the war it's like most nazi soldiers were doing horrible things right my point is making sam rockwell have a heart of gold, even though it's great, undercuts the theme of this movie. I think that is true. Um, and I don't know that I would have landed on that had it not been a very, maybe the most vocal pushback that we heard as we were reading r- r- reviews. That's not completely how I felt about his his character. I do wish that JoJo had more to do with the Nazis not arresting the girl in, in that scene. The fact that Sam Rockwell is the one that basically participates in the lie doesn't help that scene at all. Him saving the kid at the end, I do really like. I mean, I like all of it. Right, right. right. It's not bad. Like, <laughs> I'm not oh, like, boo. oh, I wish the kid would have got killed. But the problem is, again, like the big criticism of this movie is like you're not showing the villainous nature of Nazis. You're making it, hey, under the right circumstances, they're misunderstood. You know, that's mm-hmm. the pushback against sure. this movie. It's more nuanced than that. But essentially, from what I've read, that's one of the big pushbacks that it's come back to of like, hey, don't tell me Nazis are good. And like, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you. And I don't think Taika's trying to tell you. Yeah. But I do think by him acting like this, it undercuts his argument. 
because the 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 main and this is this is getting into like meaning of the movie territory, right? Yes. Which is I don't know if you know this, but the name of this podcast. It's our podcast. We can jump into <laughs> meaning of the movie anytime we want. Anytime we want. <laughs> um, but it it does seem like the central theme and meaning of this movie is a, about how does fanaticism and dangerous evil ideology grow in an innocent mind yes right and how is that healed and how is that corrected and how does it start right um because jojo is a nazi fanatic who you love from the very first scene right and so um and he is innocent right he is largely he he has not made any of his own choices yet because he has not been face to face with what the evil is and every time he is actually confronted with what the evil is not the story or the myth or the narrative right Mm -hmm. when he's brought face to face with it he always makes the right choice and so we go oh this is a good kid right right whereas you cannot say the same thing about adults none of the adults in this movie except for scarlett johansson seem to have actively made choices against Nazi propaganda, especially when it's something as heinous as genocide, right? It's hard to say, well, maybe they're misunderstood or you don't understand their backstory. Or in this situation, Sam Sam Rockwell's character appears to be a closeted individual. And so, you know, he was dealing with his own persecution probably. And, you know, and so there's reason to also sympathize with him. And I think that is dangerous as a message it just gets it can get cheap you know it can get like like i said to me it's undercutting the message and so and and to get really into it i have a few pushbacks um of reviewers that i've read yeah yeah let's let's go in in, into that because i I think this is like the knife's edge of where the the movie falters for some people and so for me i think what's interesting is this movie like we said is you know pretty well loved it's good reviews but some of my favorite critics uh I think Sean Fennessy wasn't crazy about it. Walter Chaw, you know, these critics that I just love uh, mm-hmm. are like, this movie does not work. And so here's a few. Uh, this is from Walter Chaw, which says, uh, the issue I have with Jojo Rabbit is its essential hopefulness. The belief that people who adopt certain toxic ideas and ideologies can ever change. I think it's possible, but exceedingly rare. Jojo Rabbit believes the opposite, that horrible ideas can flare, even flourish for a time, but that the essential decency of humanity will save us. With T.T. is Rousseau, I am Hobbes. Jojo Rabbit only offends me in the suggestion that good Nazis are worth saving. This is admittedly more, more my shortcoming than the films. That is a thoughtful critique. What do you, what do you think about that? I mean, obviously that j- jumped out to you when, you when you read it the first time. I think what makes Jojo Rabbit complicated is, again, it's not really about Nazi Germany. It's a fairy tale, and so Nazis are a metaphor for the KKK or for racism. Fanatic hate, basically. Right. Fanatic, like fanaticism, whatever people group and that sort of thing that you want to put into it. It's a metaphor for that. And so it's asking like, how does fanaticism happen? And actually are some people prey to it because of, you know, their child, their children who have been influenced by their heroes, by their parents, but there's actually good underneath there. If we fight for that, you know, that's, that is like the meaning of the movie to me. Right. No, I, I, I feel that. Taking that critique and like putting it on the Sam Rockwell character, I think is interesting because you, we very rarely ever see him as a character be anything but fatherly to Jojo. I want to back away from this 
for a, a second to say that I think the strength of having that character in there, which muddies the message, but I think what it can be getting at is this idea of some people can learn and grow and change. That is true. This reviewer is saying largely that is not possible. I think a lot of the times that's not. I think it's much easier not to change. And when we're presented with the call to change in our lives, a lot of the times we we get defensive and we push back and we get militant about where we are. And and hold on. In context, what he's talking about is not some people can't change. Fanatics can't change. Fanatics can't change. People who are blindly passionate, who have been sure. brainwashed towards a clause. Like, sure. I'm so cautious with my language here, but I think of like, militant terrorists i think of like the mm-hmm. people who have really brought pain and suffering to so many people yeah that they're like hey being nice and having a nice friend doesn't change those people this is you know one sure. of the critiques of the movie mm-hmm. and so it's not like people don't change because in my experience actually like a lot of people change people who i knew 10 years ago are very different than who they were today like people change their right. views kind of change but when you have this like fanaticism that makes you act passionately it gets like boiled down deep into your soul. Right. And I think my pushback of that with the Sam Rockwell character is that he never presents as a fanatic. I think Rebel Wilson's character does. Right? Like, she's the one arming children at the end. In all of her stuff in the beginning, during, like, the training camp, or when they're at the the swimming pool. Like, she's funny, but she's she seems the most fanatical. Whereas Sam Rockwell, even at the training camp, is just like a really weird Cub Scout leader. Sam Rockwell, to me, doesn't present as a fanatic so much as someone who was okay with the evil and went along with it. Yeah. Right? And the movie doesn't absolve him from that. He dies. And I don't think you're supposed to feel bad about it. So here's what I like to defend Sam Rockwell, which is so easy to do because I love him. Here is what I want to say, which is part of this movie's argument is the bravest choice is to do the right thing against all the powerful people around you. Yes. Like do the right thing, even though it's going to cost you everything, do the right thing, even though it's going to cost you ridicule, do the right thing, even though it may cost you your life, you know, Uh like in the most like flowery way to me, that's what this message of the movie is that's where the real power comes in yeah there's this moment with scarlett johansson when she goes and again it's such an interesting juxtaposition right Mm -hmm. because it's like playful funny oh we're throwing grenades and whatever and it feels like a wes anderson movie and then all of a sudden we're in a courtyard and there are people hanging from gallows Mm -hmm. and it's such a stark image and what early on in this movie when scarlett when we're introduced to scarlett johansson she goes and jojo says what did they do and then scarlett johansson said the best they could mm-hmm. i think is how, what she said she there. says they 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 did what they could they did what they could that's right yeah they did what they could and that simple sentence yeah is just so powerful of like hey sometimes all you can do is try to do the right thing against a tsunami of evil uh-huh. and i think that's what the message and that's what the moral of the movie is right and so he kind of hits that in a different way through rockwell's character i think the problem with this movie is it's if it's taken too literally or we're thinking too much about Nazis, sure. it kind of falls apart. What I said at the beginning, I go back to, which is if you look at it more like a fairy tale, I think it works. Yeah, like in in the opening 10 minutes, Jojo is literally blown up by a grenade. Like a grenade goes off about 
two feet away from him and he winds up with just like a little scar on his cheek and on like the like left side of his leg to which everyone calls him a hideous monster as soon as he has a scar right right and he's like yeah i mean he has a noticeable scar but right like he would be dead he would be full right like this movie is playing fast and loose with the rules of of reality um with a, a lot of the things for for comic value you know I guess for me, like, again, ultimately where I land is, like, this movie works and it's powerful. And, like, by going to such an extreme location and by having something, like, it's just so shocking. We've said it a couple times in this podcast, but it's just so shocking to have Hitler as a wacky sidekick. It's so shocking to have a kid in a Nazi camp. And so for, like, these extreme things to be happening and then childlike innocence next to it, it lets... (laughs) It makes the themes and the meaning more powerful than it would be if he was in the deep south. Like, I don't know another setting that would be as powerful as the one that he chose for this film. Sure. All right. So we've talked around it. We've talked about it. But, Andrew, this is the meaning of the movie. This is your closing statement. This is your closing argument. So you may have said this before. but This is kind of your final thoughts on the meaning of the movie. What do you have? So I was reading reviews as well, and there's this one that I came across from um, Jacob Sarkazian. He writes for The Insider sometimes. He says here, as he says, if you stand on a soapbox and trade rhetoric with a dictator, you, you can't win. And oftentimes dramas can present as that kind of like speech, right? Here's why it's bad. Um, but that's what fanatics or dictators or whatever you want to say do so well. They seduce people that way. But if you ridicule them, bring them down with laughter then they can't win because you can just show people how crazy it actually is. I think that is why this movie is successful. And one of the meanings of it is this idea that hate is ridiculous. Othering people and bringing yourself up by saying that you're better because of who you, you know, who you are in your race and just like blind hatred of other groups, whatever that other group is. Again, this is a fairy tale. So it kind of functions as a metaphor for all kinds of things. Absolutely. Right. Um, not, not only is it wrong and morally wrong that's in there, but that it is ridiculous. It's, it should be ridiculed. It's not worthy of debate and philosophy. It's worthy of being being laughed at and the perpetrators of it should be turned into loony ludicrous child fantasies because it's stupid again by using comedy to sort of break through your defenses it it makes you think of something that is huge and not think of it small or insignificant but not give it weight i think that's a good point of like i've seen so many dramas about this subject which are like from a wide variety of, and by this subject, I just mean the subject of hate, the subject of mm-hmm. racism or unaccept. Like I think of this movie called School Ties with uh, Brendan Fraser. There's kind of a Brendan Fraser like uh, renaissance, but like um, renaissance. I don't know what a you say. A renaissance right now? Uh, are people saying that? I just, maybe I just made that up. But he's in this movie, The Whale, and he's coming back. But anyway, in the 90s, there's this movie with like Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and he plays this jewish kid and he goes to like a prep school and he's kind of good and then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden he gets beaten up and that sort of stuff and there's a lot of like movies that are like that of like oh you see the nastiness of hate yeah there's very few movies of like oh how silly is hate right Um, hate actually doesn't make sense and i think that's what makes this movie so fresh is like hate actually has this 
pettiness to it. Right. This kind of childlike pettiness. And I think the whole meaning of this movie is rooted in that. What makes this movie work, really the message of the movie is just like, be empathetic to someone else. Right. But what makes it powerful is you're looking at it through the eyes of a child. Yeah. Like when I go to a like dinner party and meet with different people, I'm kind of like seeing what's going on. I'm like getting a sense of them, getting a feel. What do they think about the world? What kind of things do they like? Like what are they into? I'm kind of like guarded and judging them and see what's going on. Sure. My kids get on the playground and they're like, you're a kid. I'm a kid. Let's just play. Like we're both humans. Let's just play. Right. And so I think the meaning of this movie is like, the only way to really heal this divide that's happening in our world right now, this divide that's happening in so many subculture, this divide that's happening at Thanksgiving tables is to not just like have empathy and kindness, but to actually look at each other through the eyes of a child, to actually look at each other of like, oh, you're actually a person with feelings and what I say on you affects those feelings. Mm -hmm. And the scenes that we talked about where Jojo realizes his actions and what he was doing and the way that was hurting a girl. And then that made him feel bad and made him reflect. And that changed him. Yeah. We could all be Jojo rabbit. And that, that is why I think this movie in its story can say it better than we can try and talk about it on this, on, on, on this podcast. Cause even in both of our syntheses, synthesize, syntheses, what do you think it is? Synthesizers. Synthesizers. Synthesize. I'm not like a plural expert. Yeah. Um, Our uh, (laughs) herd of synthesis. Um, I hear errors in my in 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 what I'm saying. I hear bits of other people's pushback in in what you're saying about like yeah, but even if you can empathize with a Nazi, you shouldn't. That ideology is too far. Right. Even if you see how they got there, that's wrong. And they should be pushed back on, right? Like, they should not be greeted at the door with kindness. Genocide and unprevailed murderous hate is emphatically wrong, right? You don't welcome that into your door. And this movie, through its narrative and through its tone and through its point of view... Is, is able to say it out loud better better than we can, of there is right and wrong, right? Rebel Wilson gets blown up. Stephen Merchant gets taken as a prisoner of war, right? Like, there is consequences and things are wrong. And even even the Elsa, the Jewish character, have, have we said her name, Thomason McKenzie? She's... Ab- we have. We've talked about Elsa. Uh, she's absolutely just phenomenal in, in, in this movie. She is the heart and soul of this movie. She vehemently does not let Jojo off the hook with the hateful things that he he says. She's not kind to him. She doesn't kill him, right. <laughs> right? But she is not kind to him. And he has to come to her. She doesn't allow most of anything he, he says to go unchecked. Mm-hmm. And the movie isn't allowing for that either. The experience of this movie yes. is the meaning of the movie. Yes. You know, that... <laughs> That may sound Captain Obvious, but I've sure. never felt like that about any other movie where you've covered of like experiencing this story in this way from these characters is where it finds a heart and a soul. Yes. In a way, like, like I said, other settings, other characters, that sort of thing. Like this is a passion project for Taika Waititi. For sure. And it's a passion project that could be a career killer. I mm-hmm. think for the most part it was celebrated and he's crushing it, you know, like. Um, you know, he's making subpar Marvel movies now and it's fine, but like, <laughs> I hope he gets back to making more. Like, I, I guess that's where I land. I'm like, I would so much rather 
Jojo rabbits, even as divisive as they are, yeah. than a Thor Love and Thunder any day of the week. Any know? day of like, the week. And so I was like, this is a good use for a great storyteller. Right. And talking about great storyteller, we haven't really talked about his work as a filmmaker, which I think maybe we can use this to take us out on this on, on this show. But there are so many great visuals in in this in this story. Visual jokes, visual gags, but visual storytelling of like the way that they use shoes and tying shoes throughout it. Yeah, can I talk about that for a second? Absolutely. Shoes are such a powerful image in this movie. Like the, one of the moments early on when you see the people from the gallows is it really like lingers on the shoes. Uh-huh. And it's almost like an odd artistic shot where there's like, I don't know, a little like eccentric beauty. It feels like like a psychopath kind of looking at something, but it's just there's something like beautiful or haunting or weird about these shoes floating out there. And I was like, first time I saw it, I was like, why are they lingering on it? Mm-hmm. And then later on in the movie, Jojo Rabbit starts to turn. He starts to have feelings for this girl. There's actually a visual shot of butterflies in his stomach. Yeah. And so then later on, he goes outside and what does he find? A butterfly. Mm-hmm. And he starts chasing a butterfly around, leans down, and then as he stands up, he hits a shoe and then he turns around. And it's his mom's shoe. Right. And so that moment is so powerful. And then what makes it even punch all the more was one of the most intimate moments in the movie was where he goes and he's standing there and then his mom leans down and like ties his shoes together. Yeah. And the Bible, it shows like Jesus, like watch washing people's feet. And uh-huh. this is like an act of like kindness and servitude, but like mom going down and tying his shoes is kind of that moment. And now, it's something that she does a couple times in, in the movie. Cause he can't quite figure out how to tie shoes. Right. right yet. And it's, it's, it's a way that she like helps him in like jokes or around with him. It's, it's a level of connection. Yeah. And she ties his shoes together at one point and he trips and falls. Right. And then finally at the end of the movie, what he does again, talking about the visual is he goes and he ties Elsa's shoe. Right. And she, and she is wearing his mom's clothes at this point. Right including her shoes. Right. One of the last scenes of the movie before the two of them leave the house and the, the very last scene of the movie, it has no words in it and is beautiful. Um, but the, there is a scene before he and Elsa leave where um, he is flipping back through the book that he's been writing this whole time. And we don't really see much of the book the whole time. He's just writing in it and presumably drawing, drawing pictures, but they don't really show it to you. Um, and, after he realizes that they've lost the war, everyone has died basically except him and Yorkie and Elsa. Um, he goes up and he's flipping through it and he doesn't say anything. And you see all of the pages of what he's drawn of, of the Jews as she's described them. And she's described them back to him of what he's seen, right? He sees his, basically his own brain reflected on the pages and it's ugliness, ugliness, ugliness. And then he flips to the page of what she has drawn of this kind of beautiful nymph-like, you know, mermaid girl almost. And he sees that. And without any words, but to me it was this moment of him seeing like, this is what my brain was and it's ugly. And this is what I want to be like. This is, this is how I actually see this girl. I see her the way that she drew herself. And I don't want my brain to be this. I want it to be this. And that's, where we kind of end the movie of them leaving together and him no longer wearing the nuts, the nuts uniform. But that, that visual to me of him making that choice of seeing his own mind reflected in his own art, um, I thought was again, like just really powerful storytelling. It's like an emotional, it's an emotional moment. There isn't a word in it. I guess, you know, I do have hope for people because there are certain things in my past and my youth 
where I'm like, I can't believe I did that. Sure. I can't believe I thought that. Right. And when I see stuff like that, like the worst parts of me reflected back to me, I'm like, no, I reject that wholeheartedly. Right. And I have faith that other people can do the same, even if they don't. And so on that, I want to end with uh, the final quote from Jojo Rabbit, which is this. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Beautiful. That's it for today's meeting of the movie. Andrew, it was fun being real life in person. I know real life podcast recording uh, feels better. Yeah. We should do this more often. Feels better to us. Maybe it feels worse to you guys. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to see. Maybe y'all are gonna be like, get back on Zoom. We'll be back with another episode soon enough. Until then, we'll see you next time on The, the Meaning, Meaning of, of the, the Movie. movie. Together.